Hello and welcome to the Brothers F Bookcast. I'm Juan Carlos. I'm joined today by Diego. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite plays, maybe my favorite play. It's called The Man for All Seasons. It's by Robert Bolt. It was written in 1960. And shortly thereafter, in 1966, there was a great film adaptation made of the play. Uh, it's British film adaptation. Uh, same name, A Man for All Seasons. Um, and it's a really it's a really terrific story. The quick sort of overview, it follows the last month, uh, or I guess the last year or so, or maybe a bit more, of Thomas More's life. Thomas More was a politician, lawyer, statesman in 16th century England. He was a close friend of the king, King Henry VIII. And when Henry VIII wanted a divorce, he wanted to declare himself the head of the church in England. And Thomas More was a, a devoutly religious man, and he could not do this. So it's just a great high drama, the end of Thomas More's life. Thomas More is deeply loyal to the king. Um, I, guess, I guess I'll spoil it. It's a pretty well-known story. He ends up being executed for his loyalty to God over the king. And the last thing he says before he dies is, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And I actually looked it up. Thomas More is actually, he did actually say that in public before his execution. So there are a few nice moments in the play that are, many nice moments actually, that are sort of verified historical, historical facts. But yeah, I guess we can jump in. I mean, Diego, what do you think? I know you like the play a lot as well. Yeah, I think both the play and as you mentioned the movie, I think, um, are, are fantastic. You know, Robert, Robert Bolt, who himself, the writer, was very accomplished. He ended up uh, being a two-time Oscar-winning screenwriter. He uh, was the screenwriter for Lawrence of Arabia, which is, you know, obviously a fantastic movie. Uh, Dr. Zivago or Zivago. Um, and so the fact that he wrote this as a play, you know, was pretty impressive. And then obviously, as you mentioned, the, the film uh, adaptation is incredible in its own right you know um so we'll be discussing them hand in hand but to me what really stood out to me was how accurate robert bolton i guess you know by the transitive property also uh fred zimmerman zinnerman uh since he uh kind of followed robert bolt's script right the director really depicted um thomas moore's life but in how you know it, the script is very accurate. Like it, 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 for all intents and purposes, you could read it as a historical, you know, kind yeah. of biography of Thomas More. Yet at the same time, he finds a way to just make it so thrilling. And of course, you know, it is it is a a, a pretty great story. You know, it lends itself a lot to, um, you know, having like kind of a great play. But at the same time, uh, you got to give Robert Bolton, Fred Zinnemann. Uh, credit because I just thought it's fantastic like there's never a dull moment yeah. even the moments that should be dull you know you think would be dull like it's, it's just so well written and at the same time you could be reading it as kind of like a pretty accurate uh, I would say you, you can feel free to disagree because you probably know more about this than I do but I think it's a pretty yeah. accurate depiction of his life and so no I yeah, agree I, I mean the pacing the pacing of the play is 
Now, I haven't thought of that before, but you're so right. I mean, there's never a dull moment in the play, and yet it feels just, it's superbly paced. I mean, it's it's balanced, and I mean, you kind of know where the play's going. Uh, I mean, I've, I've read the play a few times now. I've watched the movie a couple times, so I know the story pretty well, but I think even someone who doesn't know the story, maybe they've heard about it, it's sort of well-known, or... I don't know if you just sort of read the back of the back of the edition of the book of the book that you have. Um, you'll know the story, but somehow it's it's not boring at all. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's magnificently done. It's helped along the movie in particular is helped along by Paul Schofield, who won uh, won the Academy Award for Best Actor. Uh, he's just a fantastic British actor. He's He's sort of understated in places, but I mean, it's a totally sort of masterful performance. So he he's Tom Thomas More, of course, and um, and the story sort of revolves, or it certainly revolves around him. But yeah, historically, I think I actually wrote a paper about this for a class that I took. Uh, historically, it's pretty good. There are, I think, some moments where some things about the Protestant versus the Catholic understanding of conscience are maybe a bit sort of confused. But in terms of sort of its adherence to, to the historical record, as I mentioned in the intro, it's, it's superb. I mean, you can find a lot of lines in the play. I actually did this for my paper. You can find a lot of the lines in the play in sort of like uh, academic histories and biographies of Thomas More. So like we know that he said these things. People, people in his time, in the time of Thomas More, they loved him and admired him so greatly. They thought he was... Uh, he was such a great man. I mean, there's a, there's a thing actually in the little intro to the the edition I have, which I don't have with me, which is a shame. But there was one of one of Thomas More's contemporaries. He sort of he had written of Thomas More. Did these man? Did these islands ever produce such a man as this? Like Thomas More was like the best thing to ever come out of England. And uh, and another contemporary of his, of Thomas More, actually gave the title gave the play its name. He said. Here was a man for all seasons, like a man who could weather anything, a man who who met everything with poise and grace and equanimity. Um, so yeah, there's I mean there's great there's great adherence to the to the historical record, and as you say, I mean the material is there for a great story, but that doesn't mean it's automatically, as we know, that doesn't mean it's automatic that it's going to become a great a great play or a great movie. So they did a really good job, really good job rendering it. Yeah, absolutely. Just because you have great material does not mean it's going to be a great play. You know, you it really takes, uh, I think it takes a great author-playwright-director with great material to really get a picture of this caliber or a, a, a movie-play of this caliber. Like it really, and th- there's a reason it won Best Picture. Um, and, you know, one thing that I guess kind of tying on to that and maybe kind of deepening into the plot is just how you know, historically accurate these characters were in the play, but just how much of a, you know, development they have, you know, to think like these, these are the real stories. So you can think of Richard Rich, you know, who I think we could, we could probably talk a lot about because he's ultimately, you know, he's, he's a, he's an acquaintance of uh, Thomas More. He views him as kind of an advisor, you know, Thomas More ends up giving him advice that, you know, he doesn't really want to (laughs) follow, you know, he kind of, uh, uh, and just to see the progression of that character. And then, you know, I read it and I'll be honest, I didn't really know who he was before I read the play. Yeah. Then I go look up his Wikipedia page and like, it's exactly, you know, yep. it's it's pretty much what happened. Right. And the same with Cromwell, um, the same with, uh, you Wolfley, know, Cardinal Wolseley. 
yeah. Cardinal Wolseley. Like these are real stories. And it's like, yes, part of it's like they lend themselves great to be a play, but you know, Bolt really does a great job of making these characters dynamic and, and sticking to the truth. I don't know what you think about that, but I just, I was incredible. Like I, I was, I was really impressed. I thought it was incredible. I read this and I'm like, all right, well, are these, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know much about my history. I knew who Thomas More was for sure. He's, yeah. he's one of my favorite saints, but I, obviously I didn't know who, who, um, who Cardinal Wolseley was or Richard Rich or, you know, I'm just not that well versed in history. And then you look at it and these, were in fact characters with really complex stories. Yeah. Really these the people who betrayed Thomas More really were the people who betrayed them. And Bolt is just able to capture that in such an incredible way. It's really not that long of a play. Yeah. It's not that long of a movie. So I, I don't know what you think about that. I'm curious to think yeah. uh, about your opinion. Because I was really impressed. Yeah, no, it's it's super impressive. I mean that's a good point too for the listener. I mean you could read this play in an afternoon, no problem. Um and this is maybe one rare instance where I might say, I guess because it's a play, it's sort of different than a novel that's adapted into a film, but you're just as well off, I would say, watching the movie as you are reading the play. I mean, maybe do both, you know, because they are pretty short. Um, but uh, but of course, yeah, the movie the movie follows the play. I'm pretty sure perfectly. Like, I don't think it even skips any, any lines. Yeah, that's... That's a good point because, you know, this is one of those times where, yeah, listeners, if you just want to watch the movie, like this was literally meant to be acted out. Yeah, exactly. It was written as a script, which as a script is incredible, but you could argue that, well, you know, watching the movie is really how it was meant to be. Yeah. You know, and they get meant to be as a work of art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they get these wonderful period details, original score, the costumes are beautiful uh i mean the castle in england it's 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 super nicely done but yeah let's let's dive in maybe a bit more into the particulars of the story uh i mean the cat's out of the bag thomas moore gets executed um but this question of character development is a good one diego um i guess you could say thomas moore really doesn't develop as a character which is sort of part of his greatness right he's just so sound and he's so committed to the truth to what is true and what is good and uh and he just never flinches, which is which is so impressive. But there, there are two other characters who develop tremendously in the play over the course of the play. One is Richard Rich, and the other is Henry VIII. So maybe we can take these guys in order. You mentioned Richard Rich. The story here is right at the beginning of the play. I mean, the opening moments of the play. Richard Rich comes up to Thomas More, and he asks for a position. Position meaning a job. So he's a young guy. He's an ambitious guy. And he wants a job in some fancy sort of court or some some sphere of, of political life or the royal court in England. And Thomas More is a very powerful man. Eventually, he becomes chancellor of England, which means he's sort of the number two to the king. So Richard Rich knows that Thomas More can give him any job that sort of he wants. He asks Thomas More for the job. Thomas More does not like the man. And Thomas More is so honest that he's not going to sort of be shy about this. So he asked Thomas More for a job right at the beginning of the play. And Thomas More says, I'll give you a job. Just wait until I come back. I have to go take care of something. Comes back the next morning. Richard Rich is there asleep on Thomas More's like front yard, essentially. <laughs> which is how badly he wants this, I think. And they discuss. And Thomas More says, go be a teacher, Richard. And that is not, as you say, David, that is not advice that Richard wants to hear. Thomas More knows of the school. Um that's sort of down the road and uh 
and he says, go be a teacher and you can, you can live a good life, right? You can do well and it won't be very ambitious, but at the very least you can, you can live a good life. And this is just not sort of up Richard Rich's alley at all. But Thomas More isn't going to offer him anything except that. And so they part ways and there's a bit of bitterness left there. Uh, the story sort of develops and eventually it turns out that Richard Rich lies. He commits perjury uh, to incriminate Thomas More sort of finally and, and get him executed. But anyway, he starts out as a good man, a sympathetic character who just, he's a striver, you know, he wants to reach, but eventually he sells out a good man, you know, to, for his own sort of political advancement. So, and it worked, <laughs> you know. Yeah, like, it does work. It does work for him. Um, but obviously in very dishonest ways, but uh, yeah, it did work for him. Uh, we should actually probably give that backstory too. I know you wanted to discuss Henry VIII, but kind of the premise behind all of this is Henry VIII. So at this time, uh, England is Catholic. It yeah. is before the Church of England. Henry VIII is married to Catherine of Aragon and is seeking an annulment um, so that he can marry Anne Boleyn uh, with whom he hopes to have a male heir because Catherine of Aragon had not delivered him a male heir. And so in order to secure this annulment, he needs, and Hunter, feel free to step in here if, if I get this, um, in, you know, if, if I'm inaccurate here, but he needs the approval of, um, I don't know what to call them, the, the, the political, I don't want to call them the elite, but kind of the, the, the privy council, we'll call it. I'm, I'm looking at Wikipedia right now, um, the privy council. I'm not sure if that's, uh, if that's accurate because it's Wikipedia, but he needs the approval of these people. Yeah. Um, and Kath, uh, Thomas More, as you described, you know, is not one to, uh, go against his faith. He's not going to grant this annulment just because Henry VIII is upset with Catherine of Aragon and wants to marry someone new. That is not grounds for an annulment in his view and definitely not one in the, according to the doctrine of the church. So Henry VIII is seeking to delegitimize the papacy as the head of the church and make himself the head of the Church of England. Yep. Feel free to critique me where wherever I may have gone wrong. Now you're but, good. Yeah, yeah. So, and, yeah. yeah. All right. So Henry VIII, um, he, he drafts up this document um, and he wants everyone to sign it. He's sending it around and the different nobles are all signing it. They're all sort of bowing to his will. And most of the tension of the story is that Thomas will not sign this act. It's the Supremacy Act. So uh, it's pretty famous, pretty important document. Henry VIII puts it out there and it says, we recognize Henry VIII, not the Pope, as the head of the church in England. And that's a big deal. And Thomas More knows that he cannot sign that act. Um, so everyone's going around signing it. And now Thomas More is very publicly refusing to sign it. And here's where the story, I think, has a really interesting wrinkle. Because, you know, you grow up and you hear about Henry VIII, six wives, and he beheaded two of them. And He's a monster, right? I mean, there's no, there's no sort of figure in, in, in Western history, I think, that's so easily sort of reviled and labeled. Uh, I guess in, in, in Western sort of uh, history, let's say before 1900, <laughs> who's so sort of easily identified as just like a, a, 
a cruel and sort of and petty man. Um, but uh, but that's actually not the impression that you leave the play with at all. I mean, he's a much more complex man than that. And the beginning of the play, he's a very good man, I think, in some ways. Um, in fact, very famously, when Martin Luther begins the Protestant Reformation, uh, Luther rejects the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. He says there's only two. And Henry VIII, with Thomas More's help, actually, probably, uh, publishes a document in defense of the seven sacraments. So Henry VIII is a man who takes the faith pretty seriously. And, uh, and he takes his friendship with Thomas More very seriously. They're, they're very close friends. Um, so he's not just this petty, cruel tyrant. But as the, as the sort of play develops, you see Henry VIII not getting what he wants and not getting the approval of Thomas More, which is really sort of, I think, poking him. Deep down, he knows that what he's doing is wrong. And the fact that this very honest and upright man will not tell him that he's doing what that what he's doing is right really gets under his skin until he sees to it that his his close friend is beheaded. Um, so it's that's that's a really cool development of the story, which we sort of uh, promised we would discuss at the beginning. And I for me, that's one of my favorite parts of the play is the character of Henry VIII. Uh, a really nice moment in the film that I'll touch on briefly is that when Henry VIII comes to visit Thomas More and everybody's scurrying around to sort of uh, accommodate the king. And finally he gets up and he sort of stands on this wall to enter into Thomas More's property. And the sun is shining directly behind him. And then he sort of steps up and he blocks out the sun. And it's a great, great moment in the movie. And you just see Henry A standing there sort of squinting. And, uh, and I mean, I think there's so much there. The sun is sort of streaming all around him. He's clearly this, this, uh, this royal figure, this regal figure, almost a godly figure. But I think also there's something there that he wants to make himself a god, right? He's claiming this divine authority, right? Because he's saying his authority as a king supersedes the uh, the authority of the church, of, of, of God himself. So there's a great sort of balance that's sort of done very well in the, in the movie there. But, uh, but yeah, I guess that's that's sort of the gist of the story is this act that Thomas More won't sign. And most of the tension in the play centers around this, like Thomas More's good friends begging him to sign it. Just what does it matter? Just sign it, you know, just like don't cause trouble for us. And his family, too. Thomas More was incredibly close with his family. He educated his daughter, Margaret, at a very high degree, very unusually for his time, uh, which is actually really beautiful. You can read some of their letters to each other online, including when Thomas More was in prison. It's, uh, I really recommend it. It's, it's very moving, actually. But he had a wonderful relationship with his family, Thomas More did. And his family visits him in jail, and they bring him things, and they beg him, just sign it, just sign it, just get out of this situation, just save yourself, just sign the act. And his friends, too, who's all very close to, because remember, Thomas More was dearly beloved by all of his contemporaries, almost without exception, as far as I can tell. All his friends, just sign it, just don't make trouble, Thomas, just sign it, you know, cross your fingers while you sign it, they tell him, essentially. But he will not sign the act. And uh, I guess it's a bit of a mystery to most of the people around him. But you have to watch the play and ask yourself, you know, what would I do in that situation? Is that a mystery or is is my word sort of worth it? Uh, to I would lose my life to not sign this act that I that I don't believe in. Yeah, and that that kind of that that I, I completely agree with all that. And I think that's extremely well put. And that kind of is related to probably my favorite line or i should say lines in the entire play dash movie which is you know he's in the tower of london 
the he's in prison. Yep. And Meg is visiting him. Meg, his daughter, is visiting him, trying to convince him to sign the oath. Um, to which he replies, "Listen, Meg. When a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his own hands, like water. And if he opens his fingers, then he needn't hope to find himself again. Some some men aren't capable of this, but I'd be loath to think your father one of them." I I don't know why that that line has always stuck with me ever since I uh, first saw this with my grandpa way back in the day. I'm um, with you. It gives me chills actually hearing it. Yeah, and I I just love that line, and I guess it's it kind of like uh, this relates both to the play and just historical England in general, which and it relates to this idea of the oath. Um, England, for as 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 far as the 16th century was concerned, the 1500s was actually kind of an advanced monarchy, you know. So you had a lot of absolute monarchs back then, um, but relatively speaking. I'll emphasize relatively speaking. Uh, I'd say, you know, England actually had, you know, a decent amount of checks and balances on the monarch. You know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the Magna Carta. And there's a reason it's such a historically significant document. And interestingly enough, it's the Magna Carta. This is referenced in the play that states that the that the church, the church has immunity from state interference. And, you know, as you, as you said before, you know, there's that scene where Henry, uh, Henry VIII kind of steps in front of the sun and it's kind of a sign that he's, you know, he's not going to buy with that. He's going to, you know, the Magna Carta, which is, you know, there's a reason it's such a historically significant document because it's really, you know, kind of the first time in modern history you see checks and balances to, to a monarch, um, you know, is clearly ready to uh, just crumble this document up if it, because of his, uh, you know, personal interest. But what's really interesting here is it's not, well, this just based on my reading, really, it's not his refusal to sign the oath that ultimately get that, that ultimately is grounds for his killing, right? Because Thomas More being the lawyer, the, 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 the very intelligent person that he is knows that if he doesn't sign the oath, but remains silent and doesn't say why, um, he can't actually put be put to death because he's not explicitly denying the king's supremacy. Exactly. Um, right. So, in that first, even when when he arrives back home, and his daughter Meg's waiting for him, she she informs of of the oath, and he's like, "Yeah, maybe I'll sign it. Let's see what it says." You know, he's 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 like, "All right, let me see what this document actually says." Clearly, um, he was not on board with it, but he wasn't going to sign it. But it, this wasn't something. You know, Thomas More was not a stubborn individual. Like he had his beliefs. He was the opposite of stubborn, if anything. Like he yeah. knew what he believed in. And he's like, all right, yeah, let me see. You know, he's like, let me see what this oath says. And he refuses to sign the oath, but he can't be convicted for that. And then as the story develops, you see them kind of bending the law, you know, throwing him in jail, uh, ultimately kind of ending with uh with Rich. Uh, uh, Richard Rich, quite the name there, you know, lying against him, basically saying that uh, that uh, that when he went to collect his books in prison, Moore told him he wouldn't take the oath because Parliament did not have the authority to make the king the head of the church, and and then he he, he basically lies as you mentioned before, and that's ultimately what gets him killed. Right. They couldn't 
legally speaking, um, they couldn't put him to death for the mere fact of his refusing to sign the oath because he hadn't said anything about it. That's um, true. That's true. And yeah, that, that more silence is, is so wonderful in the movie because everybody around him says, we know what you think of the oath because your silence, like everybody in England is talking about it, but he has a brilliant legal mind and uh, you're exactly right. He knows like, hey, as long as I haven't said anything, I haven't said anything, right? You have no idea what I think of the oath. And they press him and they press him and they press him. They interrogate him. They almost torture him because he had such a great mind. They're keeping him in this horrible cell. They take away his books from him. They don't let his family visit. Uh, And they press him and they press him. And he simply says, I will not sign the oath. I will not tell you why. And he knows that he has perfect legal standing. You're exactly right. It's only until Richard Rich lies and accuses him of treason which I think is like there's a sort of a technicality there where he's like explicitly denying the authority of, of Parliament, as you say. It's only when Richard Rich lies and accuses him of treason that Thomas More is, is convicted uh, of treason and, and uh, sentenced, sentenced to death. But before that, he's on very sure footing. So he's a very sort of agile mind and, and, uh, and he's all over it. And I also like the moment with Meg that you mentioned, Diego, because I think that's a really nice moment where I fell into exactly the trap that Meg falls into because Moore comes home and Meg's like, father, this is such a problem. Like you've heard about the act. uh, And Thomas Moore says, maybe I can sign it. And he doesn't say that in a flippant way. Meg's like, how could you say it? How could you say that? And Thomas Moore's like, I'll have to read it and then I'll decide whether I can sign it or not. But this is such a political scandal. Everybody knows, right? That what, what Henry VIII is trying to do. And so Meg says, how could you say that father? You know what the oath is going to say. And he says, no, an oath is made of words, right? If I can sign it, then I will. Remember, I die the king's good servant, but God's first, right? For Thomas More, the order, the order is God, then king. But king is number two on that list. So he, he would love to be loyal to the king so long as it doesn't, uh, doesn't interfere with his loyalty to, to God. So yeah, he has a great mind. That's like a wonderful part of, of the play, I think, and a wonderful fact of the historical character of Thomas More. Part of this is history, like this actually happened. So these are real events um, and not part of this is history. It's all history. Uh, but you really do have to, again, like tip your hat to Bolt and, and Zimmer. Uh, I'm going to pronounce his name right this time. Bear with me. Uh, just to give him credit where credit is due, Fred Zinneman. I keep on saying Zimmerman. It's Zinneman. Uh, yeah. you, know, you really have to tip your hat, hat to them because this is just so... Like you guys should really all go see this less than two hour. It's about two hour movie the film. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'd say I'd say it's uh it's definitely my favorite my favorite uh, English language play. Yeah, what what is what is really so 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 special about it? I mean, there's so much that that we've discussed already. Uh, I mean, the character of Moore, the character of Henry VIII, and uh this like burning question that's sort of that's sort of it's like burning a hole in your pocket through the entire play like what are the contents of this man's mind you know like the whole country needs to know and and there's so much writing on it um but i think for all that for all the magnificent sort of historical context and the drama and the reformation you know the church's authority being challenged in this political way and the relationship between the church and the state all these like essential questions that we're still grappling with. But I think really sort of the most, maybe if I could sort of distill the play down to one thing, 
it's this thing that I mentioned earlier. It's like this this question that I think all good literature you know, forces us to ask: What would I do? You know, like who am I? Um, it reminds me. This is this is uh, sort of a random connection, actually. But I think uh, there's a Spider-Man movie, and at the end of the Spider-Man movie, uh, the uh, Peter Parker he just goes to his English class, and the English teacher you overhear the teacher she's saying like. All literature can be boiled down to one question: Who am I? And maybe, maybe that's stating it a little bit too strong. Yeah. But it's a great question, I think, when you're when you're when you're watching this play or reading this play, because uh, yeah, like I said, like gosh, would that matter enough to me? Like, would I die for what I believed in? Obviously, it's hard to know. Maybe you don't have to make it so extreme to sort of think through these things. But despite the fact that it's you know it's taking place. Uh, in in the politics and the royal court of the 16th century England, it still feels very immediate and very very relevant. You know, and it's like would I stand up for what I believe in in this way, sacrificing everything, my family, my political position? Because of course, Moore resigns the chancellorship when he can't support the king because he he resigns the chancellorship willingly because he cannot support the king the way he feels it is his duty to. That tells you a lot about Thomas More. Um, would I resign my job, my political position, my friends? He loses his beautiful home, my family, and eventually, would I give my life for what I believe in? And the play really forces you to face that question uh, in the in the person of this like amazing, amazing man who really lived and really did all these things that we that we hear about. So I think it can't be beat. It's on Amazon Prime. You got to watch it. Yeah, I I completely agree, and I don't know which Spider-Man movie you were uh, quoting, but I must say uh, that 2002 film Spider-Man, wow, highly underrated. You can find like some of some of the uh, best quotes I've ever I've ever uh, heard dash read uh, in that 2002 one. Uh, really, really, you know, really underrated movie. But um, I'm not even like a movie geek at all. But I, it's it's shocking how many you can find in there. Yeah, a lot of a lot of gems. Uh, I guess we should just end on this, and this is uh, so. Um, you know, we are six brothers, and we had a we have well had a grandpa. He has since passed away. Um, on to bigger and better things. Um, but you know, our our grandpa Peter. So three three of our grandparents kind of grew up in Mexico area, like speaking Spanish. One of them grew up in the U.S. Uh, and it was gra- our grandpa Peter. And we first watched this movie with uh, my grandpa. I did. And I know my brother Felipe did as well. And he would comment about how noble it was. Um, you know, just how interesting it was that Thomas More tipped the executioner. Uh, to which my grandfather responded, oh, no, that was commonplace. Because uh, he wanted him to do a good job. So I decided to do a little uh, research on this. Um, just ahead of this podcast. And it turns out there's not many strong, literal, like written texts that reference tipping the executioner. There's one or two informal one. There's a lot of oral history behind it. However, it was very well known that, you know, executioners, depending on their mood and, um, you know, what crimes you had committed, would either do a very good job or a very bad job in beheading you. you know, this wasn't France. They didn't have a guillotine here. They were doing this with an axe. So it was either going to be a very sloppy job or if you were lucky, a very clean job. And so it turns out that there's actually, you know, 
there's not a lot of written text behind this. They, they have found a few sources uh, quoting this, uh, you know, kind of referencing this. And, and there's a lot of oral history behind it, that it was commonplace to tip the executioner. For instance, when, when Cromwell, I did some research on the characters in this, uh, in this play, when Thomas Cromwell was put to death um, and beheaded, it was actually a very sloppy execution because they were trying to make a statement. And, uh, you know, the messier it was, it, it actually got so bad that the bloodthirsty crowd that would actually go and watch this, even they had pity. They're like, you got to put an end to this now. <laughs> Whereas, no. uh, you know, for um, uh, Anne Boleyn, who, not in this play, but I think she's the one who, she's one of them that would eventually get beheaded. Yeah, she was. Um, yeah. Hers was actually rather clean. And so you would tip him so that he would do a good job and, uh for you know obvious reasons, you didn't want to be uh, faced with a blunt axe or anything. So gory yeah, end, but there was a lot of controversy—not controversy. There was a lot of discussion between my brother Felipe and my grandpa about this, and so I decided to take matters into my own hands. And yes, Thomas More, it is written, did tip the executioner, and it was kind of a custom at that time. So I don't know. I figured I'd add that. <laughs> that's great. I think that's a very great addition, and. It's a nice, it's a nice fact about the play too, you know, because Thomas More, he's giving his life for what he believes in, as we discussed. And you would think, oh man, what a waste! He should have just signed the act. But things were getting really hairy in England at this time, right? So Anne Boleyn, who's at the center of the story, because she's the woman that she's Henry VIII's mistress, and she's the woman he wants to divorce his wife so he can he can marry her. Eventually, she's going to get beheaded, right? And like not that long after, yeah. After, Beheaded. And then Oliver Cromwell, his great enemy in the in the royal court, who's really sort of pushing for for more to be executed, himself would be executed a few years later, right? So so you're like, oh, don't throw away your life, guard your life at all costs. But uh, but maybe Thomas More would say, no, if 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 there's something worth dying for, you should die for it because you might be dead anyway. <laughs> you know, like it sort of it sort of makes you think about what really really matters, which is maybe not preserving your life at all costs in a very messy world. But maybe, uh, maybe you know what you believe in and what you're committed to. So yeah, it turns out that post play, post uh, post this ordeal, I guess uh, Henry VIII became increasingly uh, he became flightier and flightier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's the right be, term. Yeah, yeah, no, he's yeah, he's just such a good character because he's he's really actually quite complex. It's not it's not a question of just being a monster. Um, He's he's kind of a good man, like I said, but then it's it's the fact that this very good man, Thomas More, won't approve of what he's doing. You can see it just eats him up and he devolves and he devolves and he just gets turns into yeah, turns into as you say, flightier and flightier, impossible to deal with and a true a true monster. Yeah, well I guess uh before we sign off, do you have anything else to add before we, we end it? Maybe even no. a final pitch or you won't regret it. You won't regret it. If you're a movie buff, if you're a history buff, if you're a literature buff, if you're anything buff, you know, if you're a life buff, I'll go so far as to say that, then you're going you're gonna to get a lot out of this. So, yeah, we'll see you next time on the uh, Brothers F Bookcast. Absolutely.